cream in the foyer, <laughs> but that's not what happened. That, that's, um, that's not what happened. It is good to see Renovation Church. Look at all these freshly scrubbed faces, you know? It's, it's like, yay, Saturday night. It's a reason to shower, you know? Um, it, you know, I've, uh, this, this Sunday is a little bit different, which is part of the reason I'm up here. We're actually going to have two speakers, kind of two sessions, three speakers, two sessions today. Um, and in preparation of this, it caused me to think about time. Time is kind of a fascinating concept, right? I mean, 10 months ago, Renovation Church really was nothing more than perhaps some thought and discussion between our, our elders and our pastors. I don't know that the name was anywhere in the gameplay, right? And today we have a first member, right, of Renovation Church. Technically, technically, 100 years from now, somebody's going to look up and say, Ravita was the first member of Renovation Church, right? The rest of us just all kind of slid under the doorstop or something. But um, at any rate, it, it's a fascinating thing. You know, my mother would probably tell you 95 years went by in a blink of an eye. For you, time stood still. The day mom put the bowl in front of me and said, no dessert until you eat those Brussels sprouts. <laughs> timeless. It was timeless. Yeah. <laughs> um, Time is, is really a fascinating concept. Ten months ago, Renovation Church did not exist. Ten months ago, approximately, this young couple, everybody turn and stare at them awkwardly, you know. <laughs> this young couple, Nathan and Jennifer and their son Isaac, came here to uh, tell us what their next adventure with the Christian Missionary Alliance is. The interesting part is Renovation Church is part of this organization called the Christian Missionary Alliance, which was birthed in 1887. So those 136 years have a depth and a richness that I wish all of us knew better. So it's been fun for me to think back over the people that I've met through the years and some of the fantastic, exciting, miraculous stories that I've heard. But there's also a time where you look to the future and say, what is ahead? How are we going to continue this fantastic purpose? How are we going to push this gospel forward so that Garth and Sue's grandchild, grandchildren, in 100 years from now, will still have an opportunity to hear about Jesus Christ through Renovation Church and Christian Missionary Alliance, should the Lord tarry? So 10 months ago, this couple came in here, and apparently... Ten months ago, a lot of you were not here, so you don't know who the heck these strange people are. So I'm going to invite them to come up and join me here. One of the fascinating parts of the Christian Missionary Alliance has been their innovation. They have adapted to spreading this gospel story. And um, one of these branches, I'll call it, uh, Nathan can correct me, is called Envision. And it gave these guys an opportunity to go and experience what it's like to live in a different culture for a time and test perhaps their own wills of what is God saying to us. So they're here to report back. And if you've never seen them before, then listen up because 10 months from now, if you don't know who they are, no ice cream for you. I'm just saying. Let's pray and then uh, 
then we'll let them speak. Father, thank you for this opportunity. As we look to the future and try to understand what your purpose is for Renovation Church, not just here in this locality, but as part of the alliance around the world, I just really feel that the story of the FARs and the story of Renovation Church are linked. And so help us to listen with spirit-led ears today to see what you have for us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, John. I'm going to hand this microphone off to my wife, and I hope it's okay if I move this just a little bit in front. That way I can get this set up. All right, so over, yeah, it was about 10, min, 10 months ago, we were here, and we were really sharing what's next for us. Uh, we had been before the Licensing and Ordination Board of the Christian Missionary Alliance in the Midwest District, and they had challenged us to go overseas for three to six months to really kind of dive in and explore and experience the calling that God has on our lives and to see what God would confirm in our lives as well. And so we decided to go to... Berlin, Germany. But before we continue with that, I really do want to thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Thank you so much for um, the financial support that you gave us. Thank you for the prayers, the many prayers that you prayed for us on our behalf, um, the intercession that you did on our behalf. Thank you for commenting on our posts, um, some of our posts and some of our newsletters that we sent out. That was a huge encouragement to us. Um, and we really appreciate that a lot. So thank you so much for what you have done for us to help send us to Berlin and to partner with us on this little adventure and journey. Um, and I'm gonna let Janice actually start off this presentation. All right, thank you. So the Alliance's theme for 2023 is Be Present, and Envision Berlin strives to be present in the midst of their neighborhood. The office where we worked in Berlin is named Sprig, and the idea behind naming the office sprig is found in Ezekiel 17, where God says that he will take a sprig from the top of a cedar tree and will plant it so that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. This will give shade for every kind of bird to nest under. And we'll come back to these ideas of being present and being planted, so keep those in mind. And to give you a better idea of just how international Berlin is, here are some statistics about Berlin's demographics. Berlin has over 190 countries represented, but here are some of the ethnicities with the greatest populations in Berlin. Berlin has the largest Turkish community outside of Turkey. So what does it look like to be present in a city of this many ethnicities and cultures? Part of being present is getting to know the culture around you, and part of culture is food. Yes. We had Mexican, Thai, American, Italian, Turkish, Indian, and Israeli food, all within about a 10-minute walk from our apartment. Most of what we tried in terms of German cuisine is called Currywurst, and this is a sausage that is covered in a ketchup-based sauce, usually served with fries, and a special curry-based curry spice that's sprinkled on top. We ate a lot of Currywurst. So one of our ministry tasks while we were there, this was given to us near the end of our six months experience, um, but this was to frequent an Arab 
restaurant in order to try and broker a connection between like the restaurant owners or another regular customer who would come along at the same time. So we went to, we found um, uh, a donor kebab shop. Now, which, uh, which ethnicity was it that's most represented in Berlin? Turkish, yes, so this is Turkish food. Um, and I don't know if you've been to a donor kebab shop. It's one of those where they have the meat on a rotisserie that's standing upright and it just rotates and they shave off some meat. So that's what that is. We settled on going to a donor kebab shop and we would purchase things like they had pizza, thin crust pizza basically. Um, they had a donor teller, which is a plate of meat with fries and salad. Um, we'd get baklava, which their baklava is amazing. Love it there. Um, and then we'd always get the tried and true chicken and chicken nuggets and fries for Isaac. I always say chicken and nuggets for some reason. Um, but after about our third time there, the workers noticed that we had started to become regulars and they asked where we were from. Obviously, we weren't from Berlin. And so we told them we're from Indiana, USA. And then we asked them where they're from. One of the workers from, was from Kurdistan. And when he found out that we we're from the United States of America, he said, we love USA. <laughs> so it was a little special connection there that we had with him. And unfortunately, we were not able to go too many more times to that shop because it was near the end of our time in Berlin. But this was a good strategy for us to learn, to be present in our community, to start making connections with people, and to really just see what God would have for us at that restaurant. Yes, it's about food, but it's not about food. It's about making connections with people. Another way of being present was modeled to me through a book project. And I had the opportunity to assist Envision Berlin with their first publishing project. A Ukrainian woman named Ira is journaling about her life as a wife and a mom and is writing very honestly and openly about how she has wrestled with her faith during a time of war. Ira and her husband, along with their son, have chosen to remain in Ukraine and be present in their war-torn country. So throughout our presentation, because this isn't just about us, it's also about you. And so we have some questions for you to consider as we go through this presentation. So we have different sections, different types of questions. Our questions for you are kind of challenged to you. How are you being present in your neighborhood and where God has planted you? Have you considered consistently going to the same restaurant, maybe after church on Sunday, in an effort to get to know servers and management and other regulars who go to the same place? Have you considered praying before you go there and listening so that God might show you who you need to talk with and maybe God has a word for them as well? Something for you to consider as you live your life and as you're present in your neighborhood. Um, things overseas, this is one of the things that we learned, things overseas take a lot longer than you would expect. Think about having your dominant hand tied behind your back at all times as you're trying to live life. That's kind of what it's like to live overseas. Things take a lot longer to do, and um, you'll eventually be able to perform okay with your non-dominant hand, but it's never gonna feel the same as your dominant hand, the one that you're used to using. Living in a culture, different culture does not feel natural, and your brain is just trying to figure out how do I do things in this new environment? How do I live here? Some want to take you on a little bit of an imaginary journey. Imagine your life 
It's, it's kind of like a puzzle, isn't it? We're just learning where the different pieces go in our life and we're putting them into place. And so structures get formed, routines get formed, um, and you're just putting each place in its place. And now imagine having to stop putting those pieces in place and you have to go overseas. So your life kind of gets packed up into a box and you travel overseas and your box gets shaken up as you go overseas because it's in the cargo hold of the airplane. And uh, you get there, now you gotta unpack everything. So it's even when you first get there, you wake up in the morning, where did I put the coffee grounds? What button on this new machine, on this new coffee machine, makes the coffee? Your brain's just trying to figure out how to live life here. Instead of walking through the supermarket at home where you know where everything is and you know the layout of the, uh, of the supermarket, you have to go to a new marketplace with a new layout with words that are very unfamiliar to you. And so you have to pull out your smartphone and say, hey, what in the world does Gewurz mean? And is this the right spice that I want? Let's try and figure that out. And so a trip to the supermarket here in the States could take 45 minutes, say. Over in Berlin, it might take two to three hours because it's not just one supermarket you have to go to to get everything you need. It's a couple of supermarkets. And those might be spaced out in the city, so you have to take public transportation as well. But you're putting your puzzle back together, right? You're figuring out what your new routines are. Let's go a little bit deeper, too. Imagine, if you will, being in a language class where you're taught sentence structure and grammar and verb tenses, but you don't yet have the vocabulary to make a full sentence. And so imagine you're going somewhere and you try to start a conversation with a native speaker you ask them a question or you say something in, in your broken German and then they rattle off a bunch of different words and your brain is scrambling just to try and figure out what one word might be so you can try and figure out what they're saying. Imagine waking up in the morning and being in a good mood and then by afternoon your emotions and your feelings and your thoughts are all plummeting for no apparent visible reason. This is what transition does to you. It messes with you and things take a lot longer to accomplish. Imagine having the things that trigger you come to the surface more often and more visibly. You're in a pressure cooker when you're overseas. Imagine feeling like your thoughts are clouded most of the time and that you're just trying to make your way through a fog each and every day. Imagine having a routine with life and work and then having your schedule change every couple of weeks when you're just craving that stability. This is what life is like overseas in a ministry context. Imagine experiencing decision fatigue where you're so inundated with decision after decision after decision after decision that life is daunting when you have to make one more decision. Imagine looking forward to a holiday season and looking forward to baking traditional treats. You know, all those familiar cookies and little goods that you get to eat, all those pies. And then realizing, hey, you know what? It's going to take me a full day just to gather all the ingredients that I need because I need to go to some specialty stores now to get what I need. And then my apartment doesn't have an oven. So that means I need to go to the office space to bake or ask a coworker when they're busy trying to make their holiday treats if I can use their oven. So this happened to us. Our apartment did not have an oven. And you know what we decided? We decided we're coming back in just a few short months. We're just going to wait and make our traditional treats when we get back home and we have our own oven. So that was an easy decision for us. But 
we still missed the traditional treats and life is just harder. Do you remember how I mentioned that life can be like a big puzzle? You're putting your puzzle pieces in place. There's an artist by the name of Tim Klein. What Tim Klein discovered is that a lot of the big name puzzle companies, they just have a template for when they cut out their puzzle pieces and they'll just print a different picture onto that template. So I think Tim's artwork is a good example of what happens when international workers, they grow up in one culture and then they move to a different culture and they learn about it and they start to incorporate some of that culture into their lives. So it might, their lives might look something like this. It's beautiful, it's serene. And I think all of us at some point have thought international workers' lives are great. They get to work in exotic locations, they're experts in what they do, they have things figured out. Life is beautiful for them. I think it might be something a little more like this. <laughs> you know, life is at a busy pace. Sometimes international workers don't know if they're a train engine or if they're a horse at full gallop, um, and they're just living life the best that they can. Um, I think the reality is more that it's a mixture like this, where faith and art and culture can all come together. You see, especially when planting churches, international workers are often the church there. And so they're trying to incorporate faith with culture. And yeah, life can get a little busy and you can seem like you're going in circles. But you know what? They really do shine Christ's light in the midst of very dark places. So our challenge for you for this section, how are you being present with yourself? How self-aware are you? Do you know what things cause an emotional response in you and why you're having an emotional response to that? And have you asked God to identify lies that you believe about yourself and replace those lies with his truth? These are important things, and I think that these are really things that we need to consider as we, even if you live in your home culture, these are important things to, to process through. Berlin is a very complicated and complex city. It's seemingly filled with contradictions, and yet it strives for unity at the same time. So Berlin tries to deal with Germany's complicated history and with the recent history of Germany during World War II and afterward in such a way where they're trying to reflect and learn from what happened and yet move forward in a healthier manner. They're trying hard to do that. Um, I think, though, the, the reality of the matter is uh, all this history, and especially combined with the destruction that happened after World War II, as well as the effects of communism, uh, this has created an atmosphere and culture where religion is generally viewed on the same level as fairy tales. So the Bible is equated as the same level as like Brother Grimm's fairy tales. It's a bunch of stories to them. So this means that there are several generations of people in Northeast Germany um, who have not even heard about God. Less than 1% of Germans in Northeast Germany are churched. Wow. Less than 1%. So I think often we think of Europe and say, hey, this, this is where Christianity came through. They're all Christian. Not the case anymore. It's changed. And so you'll often see the picturesque steeples poking up through the skyline of Berlin. Uh, but by and large, uh, these churches are not evangelical in nature. Um, part of the culture 
of most religious organizations in Germany seems to be that whatever is taught from the lectern or pulpit, so this is about religion, whatever is taught from the lectern or pulpit is the final word on the matter. Like there's no going against what people say from the pulpit. And this is actually different from German culture in general, where pushback is accepted and encouraged. So for example, a recent church plant north of Berlin in a beautiful setting along the largest freshwater lake in Germany meets regularly and they have a simple service. For Germans, it's important to belong to a club or an organization. And this, at this particular church plant, um, a couple who are self-described atheists have been attending. And during the service, there's usually a time to read scripture and then split into different groups and talk about scripture. And in one of the groups, the atheist couple told one of the leaders that while the family does not believe in God, they really appreciate the chance to come and listen and ask questions and challenge what is being taught without fear of being shunned. So pushing back and asking questions has become a cultural value for Germans. To some of us, myself included, it might appear as though Germans are being very critical and not taking anything at face value. They have a ja, aber culture, which means yes, but. For example, in classes, it's expected that students push back against the teacher and argue respectfully. If someone disagrees, the expectation is that they will voice that disagreement right away and get things out into the open. So why are they critical? Why all the pushback? In part because of the willingness in the past of Germans to go along with commands given by those in authority and the desire to never again blindly follow authority. So what are uh, some, excuse me, some questions for you to consider? What have you learned about the culture around you? What elements of our American culture seem to stand out to you? Where is Jesus working amongst our culture? One of the main ministry projects that I was involved in was a research project. And the overall theme of this project was to see if we could find a spiritual root of division and disunity that the team leader had seen in the area over a decade of work overseas. And so we read through multiple books on German history. We read different books by German pastors during recent eras, including Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Um, and while we did not find any conclusive singular route during this research project, uh, we were reminded of biblical principles that would help international workers and believers have healthier conflict. Because we realized, you know, conflict is not avoidable. We're always going to have conflict while we're here on earth. Um, but if we can have healthier conflict, it's going to be better for much for everyone who's involved. And so I want to read to you a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, A Christian fellowship lives and exists by the intercession of its members for one another, or it collapses. I can no longer condemn or hate a brother for whom I pray, no matter how much trouble he causes me. There is no dislike, no personal tension, no estrangement that cannot be overcome by intercession as far as our side of it is concerned. I think it's also important to note that if your identity is secure in who you are in Christ, that you are a child of God, deeply loved by God, and that Jesus' death and resurrection has settled what your value is. If you believe that deep in the depths of your soul, and it's not just a head knowledge, 
but it's transferred from your head to your heart and your soul. Then when you do feel defensive in an argument or a point of conflict, you aren't going to need to act on that defensiveness because your value has already been settled. There's no need to be, when you feel that offense rising up in you, there's no need to act on that offense because you're deeply loved by God. And that's the thing that needs to matter. And that's the thing that needs to come out in how you treat the other person and in how you treat yourself. And so I believe that we as Christians, we need to appropriate this truth that we are deeply loved by God. And I also want to, um, let's take it to a practical level here in the United States. Um, I don't know if you've heard, but there's a little bit of political strife in the U.S. But what if we, I picked on uh, Republicans last presentation, so I'm going to pick on Democrats this time. I want to equally do this to people. So if you're a Democrat, I'd encourage you, sit across the table with Republican and let them speak. Just listen to them. Listen to their story. Listen to how they grew up. Listen to what the Holy Spirit is saying to you in the midst of that. And then maybe after the second or third time of meeting with them, maybe you can share your side of the story. But let's treat each other with love and respect and dignity because we're all loved by our God and we need to treat each other that way. So, our challenge questions for you for this section. Have you looked at the history of this area of Bartlett, Illinois? What's in the history of this area and what spiritual roots are here? What can you do to address those roots? What cultural elements here in the United States put you into unrest? We have the peace of Christ, so what puts you into unrest? What elements of our culture here in the United States are contributing to disunity and division? Let's consider these things. So what did we learn about our calling? We learned that we can live overseas in a different culture. And first and foremost, our calling is to belong to Jesus. We believe the next assignment that God has given us to pursue is full-time overseas ministry. Before, during, and after the six months journey, we have seen God give us green lights and big open doors to walk through as we've pursued him in this context. So what's next for us specifically? Uh, what's next is ordination for me. Um, Alex just last year completed his ordination. And uh, that's, that's, what next, that's what's next for me. Um, what that means is what the Alliance calls an Alliance Licensed Ministry Experience. That's a two-year experience in a church setting uh, with a cross-cultural um, component. component, thank you. My mind went blank. Um, Cross-cultural component for us, and then hopefully overseas after that. And so right now we're, we're working with the Midwest District to find us a site um, to work at and to be for the next two years while I work on my ordination and while we gain more uh, leadership and more ministry experience as well. And so, again, we have some questions for you. Where is God calling you to deepen your roots as you're present or you're planted? And is God calling you to be uprooted into a different culture? To close, I would like to share with you a short devotional called a, an impulse in German. And this is something that I wrote for part of a prayer retreat that Jana helped plan when we were over there. And I think it fits well within this theme of being present and being planted. And the title is A Living Creation. Planted, we are chosen by God, 
Grounded, we are the branches and he is the vine. Rooted, we deeply hold on to who Jesus says we are. Fruitful, we have abundance that flows from life with the Spirit. Generous, we give freely because we have freely received. Life-giving, the world will know us by the love that is within us. Intertwined, we are members of one body. Fragrant, we are the aroma of Christ. Do you realize, O Christian, that in your roaming around this earth, when you feel detached from things that you hold sacred, when you feel unsettled or drift like a seed carried by the wind, and also when you feel like you have found your home, that you have been planted by God? Do you realize that you are rooted and grounded in the one who nourishes you and gives you life? Do you understand that his love covers you, drapes over you, clings to you, and is caked to you so much that no matter what you have done and no matter how much you resist, no matter how much you scrub, no matter how much you try to sanitize or run away from or deflect or explain away, his love remains on you and that you are loved by him. Like Pigpen, the little boy in the comic strip Peanuts, who most of the time is surrounded by a cloud of dust and flies, think of being marked by this love in such a way that you are described as one who is filthy generous. A cloud of generosity is upon you wherever you go, seen by the world as the fruit of the Spirit is shown in abundance. This filthy generosity fills the air, envelops those around you, and fills the world with the aroma of Christ. Hold on to each other, spur each other on, encourage each other. As a vine climbs up latticework, may you be so intertwined with each other that as you walk and roam the earth, you create bridges to all people. Be planted, be grounded, be rooted, be fruitful, be generous, be intertwined, be fragrant. Be a living creation. Thank you. I want to take a moment to pray. And I was going to pray for the fires, but, you know, with all the things that they told us that they're experiencing those are all things we're experiencing. And so we need to pray about us as well because, because the Christian life is lived together for the sake of others. So let's spend a few minutes in prayer here. Father, first I thank you for the concise way that we just heard all of the things that we've heard. Um, we are all serving in some form of cross-cultural ministry. And I say that as a person who's a little bit older than some and know that culture doesn't change digitally. Culture changes in an analog fashion a little bit at a time, over a long period of time. And for people like me, who are a little older, 
we can identify a lot of ways in which the culture we live in today is different from the culture we grew up in. And for those who are youngest among us, it just is what it is and for them has always been. So we are exactly the same as the Fars. We have to interpret the culture we live in on a daily basis and understand how to make those connections around us, beyond us, within the fellowship and outside to the world. And we need, as they are doing, to look at all the jumbled pieces of life and try to figure out how to make it work again. The things I learned 30 years ago, today those pieces are in the wrong place and have to be moved. <clears throat> and I thank you for the fact that you've already moved us as a new identity church as Renovation Church to make connections, unpack the puzzle, begin to put the pieces together, make, make the picture make sense, carry the words of life with us as we go, especially as we step into the first of our three ministry descriptions to bless begin with prayer to listen and and on it goes father for the fars they're looking for the next steps they are already convinced that being uprooted from here and moved to another location is the way to go and there's a lot to learn there's language school there's the whole process of becoming ordained there's a two-year uh, service period so father I pray for them that you will continue to undertake to support them to encourage them uh, financial support spiritual support prayer support we have to be praying for one another constantly but not just to those we're sending to a new location but for one another as we go out into the world that's so different from the one in which we grew up I thank you because the international workers, we used to call them missionaries, they always seemed so far and distant, but exactly what the FARS shared with us is going on for us. And we can't feel closer than that. We can't feel closer than, yeah, we're living it together. And so I ask you, Use Pastor Alex right now to continue expanding our understanding of what it means to draw our identity from you, to move into relationship with you the way that you designed it rather than the way we might have always understood it, to engage, connect with those around us, engage our culture, carry into it the life that comes from knowing Christ. 
and do that for the FARs as they move forward through the next several years and out into the world. Do it for Jesus' sake. And for the sake of the kingdom that you are building. Amen. 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 Uh, open up your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 4. I debated. I debated on whether or not we would continue in Leviticus this morning. And, uh, and uh, because you might be thinking, what in the world does Leviticus have to do with missions? Uh, like I was thinking. And, uh, and uh, so I, as I was getting into it, I realized that it actually has everything to do with missions. So uh, if you would, for me, consider this missions passage, I call this the take my money passage because it is the passage that most motivates me to invest everything that I have into the mission to the lost. Revelation 5, 9 and 10. This is the people who are gathered around God's throne uh, who have been one to Jesus and then you have elders and creatures, heavenly creatures in heaven and they say this. They sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll. Now you might ask, what in the world is the scroll? The scroll in this kind of story that's being told in Revelation, the scroll is the, rev the, the kind of resolution to a world that has been in chaos, in tension, since sin entered, right? So, so all of these people are looking around and saying there's nobody to take the scroll and it's saying earlier that they wept loudly because nobody can bring resolution but then they say there's the lamb and he can bring resolution and they say worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, why? Why? For? You were slain, and by your blood, you ransomed people for God. And it's not just like, you know, people, like the people that I know next to me. No, you ransomed people from every tribe, every language, every people, and every nation. So, so, so this emphasizes the results of the, like, this mission that we've been called to to the ends of the earth. Masses and multitudes gathered around the throne of God from all over the world, throughout history, from every kind of people that exists. And what this says is that every single soul is a mark of how worthy he is. We are the mark of his worthiness. The completion of his mission to the nations is the mark of his worthiness. So you know what we do? We keep sending, and we keep praying, and we keep giving, and we keep sharing the gospel, and we keep building relationships in our neighborhoods, and we keep blessing because everyone who receives the gift of his blood poured out is another one who proves how worthy he is. Okay, so let me ask this question. In that whole passage that we just read, what is the effective agent that makes it possible for the nations to be gathered? It's his blood. The blood. The blood is the thing that purchases the nations. It's the thing that brings the nations near. So heads up, if you are not a Christian, uh, we, we, you know, we Christians, we do some pretty normal things, but we have this one weird thing that we do which is that we talk about blood all the time, right? We just like, it's just like in our vocabulary, it's coming up all the time. And so one of my goals this morning is that you'll at least leave today knowing something about why we talk about blood so much. So uh, a little bit of a reflection on Leviticus. Now I'm not gonna review much of what we've gone through. I just wanna tell you that what Leviticus is doing here at the beginning is, is trying to train God's people in, in what it means to have a relationship with God. So Leviticus 4, 1 and 2, 
is showing us an offering, uh, something that people can do, can bring to draw near to God. Leviticus 4, chapter 1 says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commandments about things not to be done and does any one of them, and then it goes on after that, but I want you to imagine with me that we're Israelites receiving instruction from God for the first time, and already the words that come out are not necessarily training us in the particular ways that we're supposed to bring a sacrifice. They're training us in understanding something about sin, right? For what it's worth, sin has always been a problem. God has been warning about it since the beginning. If you were to read Genesis 4, 6, and 7, you would read God already in the second generation of humanity giving instruction and warning about sin when he talks to Cain and he says to Cain, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, look out. Sin is crouching at the door. It's waiting to take advantage of you. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. When God is talking about even unintentional sin here, he's kind of saying, you know what? Sin is so crouching at the door that you don't even have to mean to do it in order to do it. Right? You don't have to make up your mind that you're going to sin in order to sin. Sin will be there regardless of whether you intend to do it or not. There's this category of unintentional sin. And now this is, for what it's worth, not because God is so easily offendable, right? But it's because we are so broken that even when we don't mean to, we are really good at offending God. So verse three. If it is the anointed priest who sins, thus bringing guilt on the people, then he shall offer for the sin that he has committed a bull from the herd without blemish to the Lord for a sin offering. Now, uh, you may look at all of Leviticus chapter 4, and there are many different kinds of instruction given to many different kinds of people, right? It talks about priests, it talks about leaders, it talks about common people, and uh, we're not going to go through each of those. We're going to draw out principles that we can observe about all of these kinds of what are called sin offerings, pulling out key principles. So when the priest sins, it says that he can bring something called guilt, on the people. And when you read about the other people, they sin. It says they bring guilt on themselves. The key emphasis is that when a person sins, now we have this thing called guilt. That's the result of offending God, of sinning against God. Guilt happens regardless of our motive. Guilt happens regardless of how we feel. Typically, we think, we think of guilt as like being this feeling that we have because we've done something wrong. But guilt is an objective reality that exists regardless of how we feel. So what is it? Well, guilt is one of those things that make it, makes it impossible for us to be with God. Right, so, so we've kind of set up this story, the story that God is telling about himself. He's picked a people, Israel. He said, hey, hey, I want to be in the midst of you. I'm going to dwell with you. I want to have relationship with you. And so he set up this thing called the tabernacle in the midst of them. That's the specific place where he dwells and they can engage in relationship with him. Uh, but there's a problem. And that problem is he's really holy and Israel really is not. And so when they're trying to have relationship with him, they can't approach him. Their guilt is the thing that it's making it impossible for them to come near to him. 
So looking at guilt and its context, guilt appears effectively to be two things. Number one, it is debt, which is a kind of slavery, right? In fact, when you talk about debt in an ancient Near Eastern context, that's the primary thing you're talking about is slavery, something that owns you. Guilt is then, number two, corruption, the residue of death. Remember, God told Adam and Eve, if you eat of the tree, you will surely die, which they did not uh, fall dead on the spot the moment that they ate, but they introduced death into creation. They introduced corruption into creation, something that results in death. So the residue of death and slavery are the two kind of realities that guilt brings about. This is your identity, right? This is what it's saying to the Israelite. When you sin, you incur debt and corruption, and it's nothing, you can't do anything about it. It's just what exists in you. It's, it's an identity-defining category, and because of it, we cannot be with God where he is because he is devastatingly holy. So God gives this opportunity for sacrifice to do something about this. And so he says uh, to bring a bull from the herd without blemish in Leviticus 4.3. A bull from the herd without blemish. No blemish means no physical defect. We've talked about this a little bit. And that's going to deal with your guilt. Right, so, so for you, the guilty one, to come near to God, what is gonna happen? That word without blemish, it me, like if you apply that word to a human being, it means that they're blameless. That they have a kind of a perfection of moral quality. What it's saying is for you to come near to God, the guilty one, to come near to God, something innocent has to die. Right, there's, when you hear that, that for you, the guilty one, to come near to God, something innocent has to die, there, there should be an impulse in you that says that's not fair. It shouldn't have to be. Like there should be something about you that says Innocence, innocence has to die on my behalf. And, and when you start saying that, you start understanding just how much God desires to be in relationship with you. Okay, so what does this sacrifice accomplish? And, and this is where we kind of get through to the impulse, the importance of blood, right? Okay, verse 31, Leviticus 4. So it's talking about how, how the priest presents this particular offering that is given as a sin offering and kind of the processes that he goes through. And so at, at the end of this, it's drawing a conclusion in verse 31. It says, all its fat he shall remove and the fat is, uh, just as the fat is removed from the peace offerings and the priest shall burn it on the altar for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And as a result of this, the priest shall make atonement for him and he shall be forgiven. A few weeks ago, we talked about this word atonement. At a surface level, it is literally what the word says, at one meant. Two things that are at odds with each other, being able to be brought together. But the, the Hebrew word is the word kipper. Uh, and this word has two overlapping meanings that work together. Remember our definition of guilt earlier? That it is debt and corruption. The word atonement has two overlapping meanings. One, ransom, which is the paying off of a debt the purchasing of one out of slavery, and two, cleansing. It is the purification of corruption. Right, so if guilt 
is an identity-defining category, what God is doing is he's saying, I'm providing a means of bringing you near because, number one, this sacrifice, I'm allowing the sacrifice to ransom you and to cleanse you, to purify you. So, so from the Israelite perspective, God has come near. My guilt has made it impossible for me to approach him. And so God says, come near to me. You can come near and bring an innocent animal with you. And what's going to happen is that innocent animal will die. And in dying, settle the existing accounts of your debt, your slavery to sin. And it will purify you from the death that you have been swimming in because of your sin. So God's answer to the problem of guilt is the provision of atonement. And because of that atonement, at the end of the verse, do you know what it said? It said you can be forgiven. Right? If, if the animal atones for you, then you can be forgiven. So then by what means is all of this made possible? Does the priest carry out this sacrifice for atonement? I would invite you to read one of the descriptions for me of all the things that the priest is supposed to do. Leviticus 4, 5 through 7. And the anointed priest shall take some of the blood of the bull and bring it into the tent of meeting. And the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle part of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. And the priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense before the Lord that is in the tent of meeting. And all the rest of the blood of the bull he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Did you get the point? How many, like five different times it talked about blood and the significance of blood and everything that blood was going to do where blood had to go in order to make atonement for the one bringing the sacrifice. So, so the message of the purification, the sin offering is, we have sinned, we are guilty. Our guilt should make relationship with God impossible. But by the blood of something innocent, our slavery-like debt can be paid and our corruption can be cleansed. And we can live now in relationship with God. For what it's worth, we talked about the peace offering last week, how exciting it was. God's throwing a party. We get to enjoy relationship with him, fellowship with him. You know what offering you offered before you gave the peace offering? Very often you had to bring a purification offering, a sin offering. Something that could make you right before you could enter into relationship with God. So this trains them for their relationship with God. They're understanding something about debt and corruption and how that has to be covered. Okay, so there's only two problems with this whole system. Number one, did you notice there's only one kind of sin that this is for? It's for unintentional sin. Now, I don't know about you, but that does not cover me, right? I, I can't tell you that I have only ever sinned unintentionally, right? And I'm sure you can't tell me that either. Right, so, so that's problem number one. Problem number two, it is highly likely that the moment, from the moment I offer this sacrifice, that the next day I'm going to go and sin again. Because you know what? I cannot even mean to do it, and it will happen. So read with me, Hebrews 10, 11 through 14. 
It's reflecting on all of this stuff of the Hebrew sacrificial system. Verse 11 says, and every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices over and over and over again. And why does he have to do it over and over and over again? Because the sacrifices can never take away sin. The sacrifices could not fully or appropriately address our guilt, our debt, and our corruption because we would just go right back to it incur more guilt that has to be covered. So here's the thing. It was never God's plan for those sacrifices to cover the guilt. Remember, we've been talking about Leviticus and the offerings and how they were not kind of God's once and for all provision. They were training the Israelites for something better. They were pointing them again and again, saying, I want you to understand how relationship with me is going to work. He was preparing them. He gave them shadows of something the fullness of which they would receive at a later time. And verse 12 tells, about, tells us about the fullness. But when Christ had offered for all time, that means that when you receive Christ, and by the way, you don't become perfect the moment that you receive Christ, that it's highly likely that you'll go tomorrow and you will sin again. But this sacrifice is not for your previous sins. This is a sacrifice for all time. Christ offered a sacrifice that deals with sin in your past and in your present and in your future. For all time, a single sacrifice for sins, not offered repeatedly again and again and again, but offered one time for all time. After that, he sat down at the right hand of God. And verse 13, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. And then verse 14, four, by a single offering himself, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So those who are being sanctified says, when you believe in Christ, you are not yet who you will become, which means you are still fighting a battle with sin, which means that you are still having to struggle through the reality of this life, and you're not who you used to be, but you're not yet who you have become or who you will become, right? You understand that. That's good. But right now, when you are with God, it says he has perfected you, that your status with your father is as one who has never sinned. That is what it says about those who are in Jesus. Because of Jesus' blood, because of a single sacrifice for all time, all who believe in him, in terms of our status with God, we are already perfected. We enjoy relationship with him, and the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of us. His blood freed us from slavery to sin. It paid our debt to sin, ransomed us out of sin. His blood has made us perfectly clean. Like, so even though we still struggle against sin, what defines our identity now is not guilt. Guilt is done away with. Hallelujah. <laughs> 
So even though we are still fighting to overcome sin, we stand with God without guilt because Christ's sacrifice has perfected us. So what? This is why God's mission in the world matters. There is no other means that can set people free from their slavery to sin. There is no other means that can make them clean from the residue of death. It is only, only the blood of Jesus that can do that. And he proved that it was true by rising from death. After his sacrifice, he rose. He proved to us that he actually can make us clean from the residue of death. So the only way your neighbor will be set free is if they believe in Jesus. And they ain't gonna believe if nobody tells them. The only way that people in Berlin will be set free is if they believe in Jesus. And they aren't going to hear if someone doesn't get sent to them. Right, our, so our guilt makes approaching God impossible, but God so deeply desired relationship with people that he sent his innocent son to pay our debt and make us clean, and with his blood, Jesus has accomplished something that was previously impossible. He has taken the unworthy and made them perfect before God. And so I would just like to, you to hear once again what I read at the beginning. The song that the elders in heaven and the living creatures, the heavenly living creatures, sang when they realized that the lamb was standing there. They sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed. You did something that was previously impossible. Our identity was defined by sin and guilt, and you purchased people out of that identity from every tribe and every language and every people and every nation. And then the really cool part is in verse 10. You not only purchased them to yourself, but you've made them usable for you. You've made them a kingdom. You've made them priests to our God, people who are able to communicate and, and extend to others the presence of God, the opportunity to be reconciled to God, and they shall reign on the earth. This is the promise that is given. This is the connection that God's mission in the world has to what he was training his people in way back then. And so now, church, we have the opportunity to come to communion, to celebrate exactly what it is that Jesus did. We have juice up here that reminds us of Jesus' shed blood. We have bread that reminds us of his broken body. Uh, of the way in which he paid what might ransom us. Uh, of the blood that was spilt that might actually make us clean and cleanse us from the residue of death. And so the reason that we celebrate this all the time 
is because we are remembering where our identity lies, that guilt no longer defines us, that we are defined by what Jesus has accomplished for us, that the thing that, 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 the thing that was keeping us from relationship with God, which is that we cannot be in his presence without burning up because that's how holy he is. That's how perfect he is. But because of his body and because of his blood, we have been made clean. We've been made righteous. We've been made perfect to stand with him, to enjoy relationship with him. And that's the gift that we have here. So as we take this, may we uh, reflect today not only on what we have received, but may we reflect on those around us who, who have not heard, who have not yet received, who do not believe in Jesus, but who were in the very same situation that we were, who can't know what it is to have relationship with God unless we tell them. May what we receive with Jesus be the thing that also moves us outward to other people. So we'll have an opportunity to reflect here uh, in a moment. What's going to happen is um, there will be uh, some music, a chance to reflect, a little bit of silence. As you feel led, you can come and take a piece of bread or take a cup of juice uh, and, and return to your seat. And then once everybody's had a chance to come to the table, we will eat and drink together to celebrate what Jesus has done for us. And then, uh, and then um, if you are here this morning and you're not a believer in Jesus, I would just uh, say to you, this, this table that we share together, this is a way of proclaiming what is true about our identity. And if you're not believing in Jesus this morning, um, I just wouldn't want you to make a claim about yourself that you can't make in good conscience. So, uh, so as, as people come forward, we're really glad that you're here, but we ask that you stay at your seat as we come forward to eat this bread and drink this cup. So church, um, the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, he lifted it up to heaven, he gave thanks for it, he blessed it, he broke it, and he said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way after supper he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out just like the offering had its blood poured out at the altar. It's poured out for the forgiveness of sins. The Apostle Paul says to us, as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim again and again and again the Lord's death until he comes. So church, take some time to reflect and then as you feel led, come to the table.